All right, and welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast of the University of Wisconsin Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, chair of the Psychology Program and host of Psychology and Stuff. And I have a, a super special and exciting guest today. So um, fresh off a talk, actually, just now for a conference we've been hosting on campus here is Dr. Scott O. Lilienfeld. How are you, Scott? I'm doing fine. Good to be here. Great. And for those of you uh, who may not know, Dr. Lilienfeld is author of the book 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology, as well as some other books, including one I actually just learned about called Mindless. So. Um, now, I'm very familiar with 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology. I actually uh, got it as a Christmas present the year oh, I've written. I'm, my, I'm honored. My, my wife uh, got me that, and then I, I, can, uh, I bugged her with it over and over and over again with, uh, as I would read things and say, hey, listen to this. Hey, listen to this. So I think she feels like she read it, too. Um, tell, tell me a little bit about, I guess, I, I want to start out with some info about you and your background mm -hmm. and how you got interested in that particular topic. So, yeah, in terms of background, so I'm um, a PhD in, in psychology, clinical psychology from the University of Minnesota, and I've always had a deep love of science, including psychological science, and uh, it's always been a passion of mine. As I tell my students, I really started what I call this love affair with, with psychology as early as high school, I took a class back then, and majored in psychology and so on. And um, I think one thing that I became concerned about in the course of my training was the way in which inaccurate knowledge can pose a great risk to the general public. And I became quite interested in skepticism and the science of critical thinking because in my own field of clinical psychology, I began to realize that lots of people had ideas that were not well supported. So the idea, for example, that people can suddenly recover memories that they supposedly forgotten about after decades with the aid of psychotherapy in, in my view is is not a terribly well supported belief maybe it's true in a small number of cases but i suspect it's probably much rarer than people believe and may may even be non-existent in most cases so those kinds of beliefs became to concern me because i began to realize that there were lots of clients in psychotherapy who were potentially being harmed by these beliefs and i began to think that our field wasn't doing enough to challenge, take on these beliefs. And that kind of became an entree to me into the broader field of skepticism and, and, uh, and scientific thinking. So um, that's really interesting. And so what, you know, and I, part of this is I just finished uh, listening to you talk to a room full of high school teachers about, about this. What is it that you would say if you could, if you had a magic wand, you could wave it and and kind of help high school teachers or, or college psychology instructors do their jobs better or differently. What would you want us to be able to do? Yeah, it's a hard thing because, frankly, if I were advising college teachers, I think their hands are somewhat tied because in many cases they have to sort of teach to tests and so on. So right. I think a lot of them are doing an amazingly good job of doing what they're already doing. I, I suspect I probably wouldn't give them too much advice about <laughs> doing things differently. Okay. But I think if I were to wave a magic wand and change the way we teach psychology to high school students and mm -hmm. beginning students, I, I would really love to see that we have less emphasis just on disembodied facts and figures, which are important to know mm -hmm. about, and more emphasis on how to think, because I think that the science of psychology has taught us a lot about general thinking skills, general biases, that we're all prone to, and potentially even how to overcome them. And I would argue that body of knowledge 
is remarkably cross-cutting and can be applied to all areas of psychology. I think probably most students coming out of intro psychology are going to remember only a very small proportion, and there's some data showing this, mm -hmm. of the actual facts they, they learned. So they may remember some things, and I'm not saying we shouldn't teach students the basics. We should teach them what classical conditioning is. We should teach them the basics of memory. We should teach them about psychopathology. But by the same token, I think it's just as important, if not more important, for them to understand how to critically evaluate the information they receive, because that, that I think, is information that can stick with them for a long time in principle, even a lifetime if they apply it. Okay. So um, I, I want to talk a little bit about, well, I guess well, let's stay on kind of myths and things like that. I do want to talk a little bit about the book Mindless. I'm really curious. To it's actually called Brainwash. So the Mindless is actually in the, in the subtitle, I should oh, say. Oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah, well, no problem. Yeah. My bad. So it's, brain, yeah, so it's actually called the Brainwash. See if I can get it right. Um, <laughs> the, mi the, um, the Seductive Appeal of Mindless Neuroscience. Oh, okay. yeah. gotcha. And by the way, I should point out that that term mindless was misunderstood by some some critics who thought that we were implying that all of neuroscience is, is mindless. It was actually a little bit of a double entendre. We were taking on some neuroscience that we thought was poorly supported and overhyped. So okay. that was part of what we meant by mindless. But there was a double meaning too, which is that we also felt that a lot of neuroscience was disregarding the mind, that is the psychological level of analysis, and focusing too much on a simplistic kind of reductionism and thinking that one could understand all psychological phenomena simply at the neural level of analysis. Mm -hmm. Neural level analysis is really important, but it's not sufficient in our view. One also has to take a psychological approach to these problems. Okay. Yeah. How did you, um, you know, knowing that you, you were telling me that uh, some of your work has been on psychopathic personality, mm -hmm. and and then you've done this work on this. How did uh, you get attracted to to brainwashed and, and mm -hmm. moving in that direction? So I, I have a, a colleague and occasional co-author, Sally Sattel, mm -hmm. who's a psychiatrist in DC, who is, I, I think Sally gets the major credit. She's done a lot of writing on addiction. And okay. she and I had talked. We were written some things together. And she was very concerned about the prevailing model, and I think it's still very much the prevailing model of alcoholism and addiction, namely the brain disease model. Mm -hmm. And she was very concerned that that model was not just wrong but misleading in mm -hmm. several ways. So we did some writing, basically arguing in as many words that yes, addiction is of course in part a disease of the brain, no doubt, because it's obviously the propensity toward addiction, of course, is instantiated somewhere in neural tissue, and severe uh, alcohol use can damage the brain. So it's in part a brain disease, but we also believed very strongly and still believe that it's also just as much, if not more, a motivational uh, disease, a social disease, a cultural disease, one that can be looked at at multiple levels of analysis. We thought that was dangerous because the brain disease model, because it often implies that addiction is a invariably chronic relapsing disease uh, that is outside the control of users. And, and I think the data clearly show that's not the case. So based on that, we became interested in that model, but also became more broadly interested in the way in which neuroscience was often being misused by the media, misinterpreted by the media, and in some cases even by, by overly zealous neuroscientists themselves, and, and resulting in, in often erroneous conclusions that were being propagated in, in the among the general public. So I've got two kind of follow-ups here. One mm -hmm. is um, I, I, I show a movie uh, in one of my courses. It's a little dated at this point, but it's called The, the Medicated Child. And they talk mm -hmm. a little bit. It's a frontline special, I mm -hmm. think. Yeah, I've seen that, yeah. And, and they talk a little bit about some of these kind of mm -hmm. uh, strip mall shops that you basically mm -hmm. use kind of 
neuroscience to diagnose and to talk about. Uh, what are your thoughts on those, having in investigated some of the research? Yeah, so... Um, Without, of course, calling out any no. specific places, which they mentioned in the show, but right. just in general, the idea. Well, I think we as a field of psychology get a bad name when we overhype things and when our claims run way ahead of the data. And I think there's a, a case, um, one case right there of where you see that. Take ADHD, mm -hmm. Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. We, um, it's tempting to think that one could use a functional brain imaging scan, for example, to diagnose ADHD. And maybe one day we'll be able to do that, but we're, we're a long way from being able to do that. And there is, as of now, no known neural signature for ADHD. And in fact, I would even go further and say there's little or no evidence that brain scanning information even aids in the diagnosis of ADHD. But uh, I think partly because of the way we, we tend to think about these disorders, we often engage in an error that's sometimes called neuroessentialism, where we basically equate people's diseases with their brains, we somehow make the mistake of thinking, oh, all we have to do is, is look at their brains, and that's going to tell us everything important about who that uh, child or, or other individual is. Again, I don't think that's well supported. So I, I think that those, I don't, I don't blame, by the way, at all the parents or others right. who, are, who are going to these uh, people because they're, they're looking for answers and who can blame them. What I do blame are the people purveying these mm -hmm these interventions and, and assessment devices, which really have not been scientifically supported a, at all. And I think even, I think that's actually not a particularly controversial claim. I think right. people in the ADHD field would, would happily admit that, yes, maybe one day things will improve, but, but right now the brain imaging technology is not sufficiently advanced to do that. I saw you earlier give a very nice presentation on, on DSM-5, and there is virtually no evidence, in fact, there, there's no single brain-based indicator in the entire uh, manual. There's now for some sleep disorders a kind of for the first time a kind of uh, biochemical indicator. But that that's telling that in the entire manual of 300 some disorders, depending how you count them, there there's yet to be a single functional brain imaging finding included as a criterion. And that's not because the DSM founders have a bias against brain-based uh, 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 diagnoses, one could argue the contrary, it's because they well know that the, the science is not sufficiently well developed to, to allow us to use those indicators to diagnose any known major mental disorder. When I, I was thinking as we were talking, an, another example I think where I, I think people are really looking for, you know, a, a sort of essentially a smoking gun uh, in mm -hmm. the brain is with autism. I think uh, you, I'm consistently reading articles about uh, parents wanting that mm -hmm. and, you know, the, the practitioners seeking it. You mm -hmm. know, that that's a place where I think people want, people are hoping for that answer. Absolutely. Uh, and I, I don't blame them. And by the way, I, I don't, I think people should continue to look for biological correlates of autism. Mm -hmm. I think that's very important. But I think that's right. I think, again, uh, we don't yet have a smoking gun. We certainly don't have a, a biological measure that we can use to detect autism. And I, I would argue if you look at the, the emerging molecular genetic literature on autism from what we call genome-wide association studies, not to get too technical, but by and large I think what it suggests is whatever autism is, it's very genetically heterogeneous. That is, it may not be one condition. It may be lots of um, conditions that may show some slight overlap. If that's the case from these genetic studies, what that might suggest is, is it really may be a fool's errand to try to find a single marker because because we may be trying to find a single marker of something that's not a single thing. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so we have to be careful about that. I think a lot of what we currently regard as psychiatric diagnoses probably are somewhat related, but probably bear a kind of loose family resemblance to each other and are not monolithic, not one disorder. I think a lot of people need to understand that merely because something has one name doesn't necessarily mean it's one thing. And history of medicine has progressed that way. People realize that what we call cardiovascular disease, for example, is not one disorder. There are many different ways in which the heart can go wrong. If there are many ways in which the heart can go wrong, just imagine the human brain, which is is, uh, billions of times more complicated than even uh, a complicated organ like the heart. There are many, many ways in which mental functioning can go wrong. So that that should imbue us with a certain kind of Mm -hmm. humility and caution when it comes to making claims about we found the one Right. neural marker of autism right. or depression or what have you. Right. And I think another example of some of those exaggerated claims made by researchers for me is um, I think that the notion, the concept of emotional intelligence and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you know, we, and, and sometimes I think this disconnect, or it, it seems to me that this disconnect isn't necessarily psychologists who are exaggerating things, but it's sort of people out to try and make money who aren't psychologists who kind of grab onto a concept and run with it mm-hmm. in, a, in a way designed to make profit. And I think we, we see these claims from, uh, you, know, uh, you know, hey, it's the number one predictor of success yeah. in the mm-hmm. business field, things like that, yeah. things that we know aren't true. That's um, right. Yeah. Um, and, and then end up doing a disservice to, to all of us. I, I agree, and I think that, um, um, I think that's true. I also think, though, that it's, it's psychologists' responsibility to speak out when they do yes. see misuses of these concepts yep. in the general public. I get a lot of these things, like emotional intelligence, undoubtedly have a core truth mm-hmm. to them, I think, but I, I, I'm a little dubious that there's only one way in which people could be emotionally intelligent. Right. And, and I think, again, probably what we're talking about here, there are probably different emotional intelligences and, and different ways in which people can be particularly good at, at regulating their emotions, detecting emotions in other people, and, and so on. Okay. So you said a couple things during your talk that I wanted to pick up on. Um, one is, and I love this, and if I'm misquoting you, uh, I just trying to let me know, but you said scientific knowledge is provisional. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate on that for people and what, what you mean? Sure. Um, I think in, in science, we probably can never prove anything with, with, with 100% certainty mm-hmm. because no matter what we've discovered, it's always possible it could be overturned tomorrow. Mm-hmm. So we have to be very careful about using the term proof, although we often do that. So I think I think of science as a bit of a prescription for humility, which is a counterintuitive concept because scientists themselves can be kind of arrogant pigheaded, <laughs> just like everybody <laughs> else can. So when I say science is a prescription for humility, I don't mean that scientists themselves are always humble. Some of them are, but right. many of them are not. But science, the science, uh, the process of science, is really. Uh, a prescription for humility because it's basically saying you might be wrong about this and the scientific community is always trying some of this is the way scientists work some of this is because this is what makes scientists famous and scientists are human like just like everybody else scientists are always trying to one-up each other and try to disprove each other and mm-hmm. so on that's not always a sometimes it can get kind of ugly and competitive but that's not always a bad thing because that means that science scientists are subjecting each other's claims to mm-hmm. scrutiny so it's always possible that scientific knowledge that we are pretty sure about today will be overturned tomorrow. On the other hand, one doesn't want to go the other extreme and say, therefore, all scientific knowledge is, is equal, that we can't be sure of anything. There are some findings in psychology, for example, like 
cloud conditioning, um, visual after images, and so on, that are, are so robust, so well replicable that I, we can almost, I wouldn't quite use the term facts, but we can almost refer to them right. as facts because they are, are so robust that the odds of them being overturned tomorrow is infinitely, uh, infinitesimally small, right. although it's always remotely possible. But there are lots of other findings that kind of fall in that gray area, things that we can be pretty sure about but may be proven wrong, and then other things where we're, we're really not sure at all. So there's a kind of continuum of certainty, but I'm not sure we ever get exactly to 100%, although we probably get pretty close. Right. So that's really interesting for, for a couple of reasons. One, and, and this is not a criticism, it's the opposite. In fact, it's praise. But um, I noticed during your talk, oftentimes, instead of coming out and saying something was not true, you said that's probably not true, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, and I agree with that language wholeheartedly. It got me thinking during your talk, though, about how so often scientists are up against people who are, mm -hmm. aren't as careful with language as you and I are. And mm -hmm. so people who, you know, I think of in some ways religion, that, that purports to know the truth mm -hmm. and, how, um, and how hard that makes it for us to, to kind of go out there and, and be humble at the same time when we're up mm -hmm. against people who are refusing to be humble. I mean, that's true. I think religion is, is different from science mm -hmm. in, in a lot of ways. For one thing, it doesn't really deal with the realm of the testable and the falsifiable, mm -hmm. which is fine. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's long, as long as religious claims, I think, stay in the realm of faith and don't claim to be making statements about the factual world, I think that's fine. I think where it gets, where religious claims sometimes get in trouble is when they make claims that are that venture into the realm of the falsifiable, but but right. are not well supported, like uh, New Earth creationism, for example, the claim right. that the Earth is only six thousand years old, which I think has been pretty well refuted. But um, but you're right. I, I guess my own take on this, and I, I it is a, a real challenge, and it's something I struggle with too. My own feeling about this is that in the long run, I think it will serve us better if we're more tentative in our knowledge, because yep. I think that. I think we've gotten, again, ourselves in trouble as a field by making overly certain claims, overly confident claims that turn out not to be correct. I will say this, I teach intro psychology and I, I know for sure that my students get frustrated by this because they will tell me that. Mm -hmm. and I, but I tell them, that's good, you're frustrated. They'll say, but I'm not, which one do I believe? You're, you're saying there are two theories and there's somewhat better evidence for theory X, but theory Y might be true, which one is correct? And That's difficult. I said, yeah, that's difficult. And you know what? That's okay you're frustrated because that's the state of the evidence. If the state of the evidence is uncertain, <coughs> students should understand that they should be uncertain as well. Yep. Yeah. You know, I think the the old <coughs> APA learning outcomes had a statement about the ability to tolerate ambiguity mm -hmm. that I always loved and and really appreciated. I don't believe that's part of the new. Uh, they should be. I didn't realize they took them out. They, yeah. they, that should be uh, that should be in there because and, I think that's really important. And yeah. uh, for the record, if I'm misspeaking, I want to apologize now because. Uh, <laughs> because, but I, I, I feel like they took it out when they when they updated the learning outcomes. But I think that's an important uh, absolutely quality is being uh, being able to tolerate that that lack of certainty. Well, and particularly in psychology, mm -hmm. because we we have a very probabilistic discipline, mm -hmm. and students sometimes, understandably, and I think I was probably this way as a student too, get frustrated when we learn. For example, that the best predictors of certain phenomena, like the best predictors of aggression or violence in the real world, might be a measure that only correlates like 0.3 or mm -hmm. something, where, where the maximum correlation is 1.0 right. with that outcome. And we go, wow, this is terrible. Can't we do better? Can't we, can't we be more sure who's going to 
who, for example, uh, is going to reoffend after committing a particular crime. Can't we do better than that? And the fact of the matter is we, we live in a very probabilistic world in psychology. Human behavior is extremely difficult to predict. And I'm at the point now where my aspirations are much more uh, much more limited. So mm-hmm. if I have a measure that correlates 0.3 or 0.4, for example, with propensity to engage in, in violence or predicts voting behavior at a correlation of 0.4 or 0.5, I'm actually pretty happy. That's, that's actually good. that's actually pr- pretty good prediction given how incredibly multiply determined mm-hmm. things are. So I, I, I have to laugh a little bit when I have colleagues and friends in the traditional hard sciences like physics or math um, well, actually, math is more the language of science, but physics or chemistry or um, the, the so-called hard errors of biology that sort of scoff at us because uh, we can't predict things very well or we can only isolate 10% of the variance where they can isolate 99% of the variance. And my response to that is, look, you guys are dealing with things that are much more certain, except for isotopes. Yeah. You know, all carbon atoms are exactly the same. You know, And um, we're dealing with uh, things where there are thousands, probably tens of thousands of input variables loading into complex phenomena, like why do people get divorced? Why do people act, act angrily? Why do some people act uh, antisocially? Why do certain uh, cultures go to war? The, the number of causes there is is absolutely astronomical. So it would actually worry me if our prediction were better. If, if, right. if we found something to predict uh, aggression with a correlation of 0.99, I would actually doubt that it was an accurate measure because these things are and should be highly multiply determined. Right. So if you had to kind of pick, uh, whether it's a myth or, or a, a problem in the way people tend to think about things, that, mm-hmm. you know, thinking of the things you outlined in the talk just now, what are, what are some of the things that you would think just this is the one that bugs me the most. Or do you have any pet peeves that way? Yeah, a lot of pet peeves. Yeah, I, I think though, I, I think increasingly, it's a good question. I, I think increasingly, I probably uh, become more interested in dealing with sort of higher order or, or meta biases rather than individual biases. I think some of the individual errors, like the idea that people use only 10% of their brains, which is clearly wrong, the idea that certain people are right versus left brain, which is clearly wrong, the idea that vaccines cause autism, which is almost certainly wrong, at least in most cases. Those things do bug me. But I think I'm more, become more interested in sort of broad biases that we all share. Mm-hmm. So uh, two I'll talk about here in particular are confirmation bias and, and bias blind spot, which are, are, are particularly interest of mine. Confirmation bias being this propensity that we're all prone to, you're prone to it, I'm prone to it, everybody I know is prone to it, that... Um, in which we tend to seek out evidence consistent with what we believe, deny, dismiss, distort evidence mm-hmm. that is not. I think that's a very powerful bias that leads us in, in big trouble. I think it has huge implications for many, many domains, not the least of which is the political mm-hmm. process, because I think there's more and more evidence suggesting that when people have a particular belief, and of course we're in the middle of election season right now, people will seek out websites, blogs, cable news, that just supports their views and, and dismisses and or selectively reinterprets other evidence. And again, like a lot of biases, I think it's 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 probably partly adaptive to a degree, but if it goes too far, it can cause problems. The second one is bias blind spot, which is uh, maybe arguably even a more deeply embedded bias, which is it's uh, sort of a bias about a bias, some people call it a meta bias, in which we, we tend to be able to spot, detect biases, including confirmation bias, pretty easily in other people, but not in ourselves. And then I think is a very powerful 
mm-hmm. bias that's very hard to overcome because, again, in the political sphere, for example, we may think people on the other party are hopelessly biased, foolish, maybe even evil or malicious, without seeing the, the fact that we may have some of the same biases ourselves. Right. Also, I think we often tend to default to what I call the, the malevolent attribution error, where we, if we see someone disagreeing with us, mm-hmm. rather than saying, I think they're wrong, I think they're misguided, maybe at worst I think they're, they're foolish on this issue, mm-hmm. we think that they're stupid, or even worse, evil or malicious. And I think that's part of what's run our political system down, because rather than say, okay, you like Donald Trump, I don't, or vice versa, uh, I disagree with you strongly on this, but I still think you could be a good person, let me try to see the way the world the way you do, I, and I, I still strongly disagree, but that's fine. There's a temptation, regardless of, of where you are on, on Clinton versus Trump or whomever you, you prefer, to think that people who disagree with you must be evil or malicious or stupid or lying or what have you, and I think that that is, I think, a, I think the default position probably should be the opposite. I think the default right. position, which is probably much more likely, is simply that, at worst, other people may be falling prey to confirmation bias. But the truth is, we probably are to some degree too. Right. Yeah. You know, I've been thinking a lot about confirmation bias lately because um, with the, the way people use social networking, especially the way people get their news th- through Facebook and Twitter, um, we know that that. It's not just that we're seeking out news, but we're actually being fed news mm-hmm. yeah. that is consistent with us. And nobody right. knows the algorithm that, I mean, That's right. most people don't know <laughs> the algorithm Facebook uses or Twitter uses to feed us news. Mm-hmm. But we, uh, we do know that they give us what, the, what they think we want to see. And that's probably going to increase. There's a whole mm-hmm. book on this called The Filter Bubble that discusses mm-hmm. that tendency. And yeah, there's a recent study that claimed it wasn't as large a bias as people think. I don't know whether that's true, but I, I think it probably is there, and I, I suspect it's probably going to get larger. Hmm. And um, as more and more of these social media sites get clever and clever at, at picking up our, our preferences, right. uh, I use Amazon and, for example, buy books. I'm always amazed at how they'll say, the, the following choices may interest you or something. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and sometimes they're, they're accurate, sometimes they're not. But, but with, with news, I think that's a particular danger. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand uh, that's capitalism at work, and I don't blame the companies for doing that, but the danger is, again, we may end up being selectively exposed. I think confirmation bias teaches us also that even if we're not selectively exposed, there's such an enormous cafeteria of information right. available on online and other sources, we're probably going to find it if we're motivated to look for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I think that is definitely true. Um, so I've got uh, a couple of th- I guess... Um, I wanted to ask you, you said something really interesting at the end that I, uh, that I liked in your talk where you described us all as, you said, we are all knowledge seekers. And I wondered how, you know, in my mind that does often, that does really fit in nicely with what you're saying, that, that and this sort of maybe an optimistic way of looking mm-hmm. at a lot of this, but we're seeking out knowledge, which is mm-hmm. why we're so comfortable filling in the gaps with stuff that's, that's exactly right. true. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I think we have to remember that my, my late friend Barry Byerstein was actually one of the co-authors on this this 50 Great Myths book. You mm-hmm. put it out, Barry tragically died of a heart attack uh, not long before the book was, was published. Sorry. A close friend of mine. And um, Barry liked to say, uh, there's a seeker born every minute. It was a bit of a takeoff on P.T. Barnum's, there's a sucker born every minute. Right. And Barry was a great role model because even though he was a skeptic and he was could be very tough on um, various unsu- uh, supporters of unsupported beliefs, although he did it a nice way. He was also 
always an optimist, and I think he realized that people are seeking knowledge, people are seeking explanations, and and in some ways that's reason for optimism because it's not as though people are, I mean, certainly there are differences in how curious people are about various explanations, but we're all looking for explanations for things. So if we have a, um, a child with autism spectrum disorder, for example, we want to understand how did my child develop that, and that's totally healthy. That's, that's a healthy belief to have if we want to understand why do people behave angrily or violently or, or even psychotically. It's normal to look for explanations and perhaps look at the sky and say, gee, there's a full moon tonight. Maybe that's why the person right. did it. So we're, we're pattern-seeking organisms. We're meaning-seeking organisms. And that's, uh, that's actually healthy. The danger is that it's very easy for people who are unscrupulous to fill in that gap with inaccurate knowledge. And right. part of our role, I think, as scientists is to better communicate with the general public to make sure that those meaning gaps are filled in with better supported information. Because otherwise, if we sit and wait on the sidelines, we could be pretty sure other people are going to fill it in with something that's not well supported. Right. No, I often, I've got two young kids, and if you spend any time around kids, you know, they're constantly asking why, you know, why, or how did that happen? And that's and wonderful. That's it, great. Yep, it it could be annoying, but it's also, yes. <laughs> but yeah. it's also wonderful. And I, and I discovered quickly that, that a lot of their questions I didn't know the answer to, and, and you become, it became clear to me that I could either, I could do a couple things in that situation. I could lie, which is not a good <laughs> idea. Uh, I could simply say, I don't know, and move on, or we could try and figure it out together. And and part of what I'm, I've gravitated towards that last thing, uh, you know, trying to figure it out together. I think that mm-hmm. there's something, one of the things I try and work with students on is to, to try and take pleasure in the, the journey of discovery. Absolutely. And yeah. to think about how, you know, it, it's okay when there, when there are gaps in knowledge, let's try and fill them and let's have let's enjoy the process of filling. That's a wonderful, um, that's a wonderful attitude to have. And I think, I think it's also wonderful to model that modesty and to say, yeah, that's a pretty basic question, but I wish I knew the answer, right? right. And the <laughs> right. fact of the matter is the truth is a lot of us don't know why. So, right. you know, why, why, does, uh, why do leaves turn color in the fall? You know, people yep. can, if you ask the average person, they'll, they'll come up with some explanation, but it's often wrong. And mm-hmm. better to say, you know, I don't quite know why. Let's, let's look it up. Yeah. Let's, find out, uh, let's find out this together. Yep. Yeah. So... Wonderful. Well, I am so very thankful for your uh, willingness to, to talk with me today and uh, really, really enjoyed the talk you did. I should tell you, by the way, um, I, I really, so the last time I heard you speak, which was here probably about eight years ago, I'm guessing. I think it's about right, yeah. Um, I, I did, I went back, I teach research methods, or I did at the time, and I went back and I made some pretty big revisions. Oh, that's, that's, that's a real honor to me. So, um, for those students who have taken that class, you know I, I have a series called, uh, called What Good Scholars Do, and it's, oh, that's um, great. And it's very much uh, framed around some of the... the well, I'll have, to, I'll have to get the slides from you, that would be great. <laughs> oh, wonderful. <laughs> Thanks, so, Ryan, I really enjoyed it. You bet. So, um, so thank you very much. You, uh, actually, before we go, uh, do you have anything else you want to plug? Any, any other books coming no, out? No, I think like you that? did a great job. That's, oh. uh, um, um, right. that, that, that was just fine. And the other thing I would plug is uh, is to try to turn students on to scientific thinking and let, let them understand that you can, even if you're not interested in becoming a scientist, 
later on you can learn to think like one and that's going to help you to make better decisions in everyday life. Right. Wonderful. So that is Dr. Scott Lillianfield, author of 50 Great Myths of Popular Psychology and the book Brainwashed. So I wish I got the title right this time. Sorry about that. <laughs> exactly. Um, no problem at all. Real quick, I want to thank a couple people. Uh, in addition to Scott, I want to thank Kate Farley, our producer, who's going to put this episode together for us. Uh, I want to thank Kimberly Valise, who did the podcast art for this episode. Um, just a quick note about our next episode as well. We are doing a, a talk on the psychological benefits of dance, actually, in a few weeks with uh, some people from the community, Michael and Mina Witte, who work for Simply Ballroom, as well as Ali Schramm, a psychology student here at UWGB. And that is going to be a live episode, uh, October 26, Mac 237. And uh, actually, Michael and Mina are going to dance for us at the end of it, which is great. Not usually a podcast kind of thing, but uh, we'll live stream it somewhere. So that is all we have for today. Thank you very much for tuning in. Bye.